Anasa. So just a very brief and simple reminder about the central themes of shamatha practice and how they relate to the practice of lucid dreaming and then on into deeper waters in dream yoga. It's very familiar, so I have very little, if anything, new to say, but it will be brief. And that is in terms of the shamatha. It really cannot be overemphasized. You cannot hear it too many times. But the beginning is relaxation. It's loosening up, setting your body and mind at ease. It's just the opposite of fight and flight. And I've read, and I'm no expert at all, but I've read that just the whole pace of modernity sets us into kind of a chronic mode of fight or flight. You know, that we never really quite, many people just never really quite let themselves down so they're not poised to either you know, go into one of those two modes. So there's a deep sense of ease, and it's beyond simply a rela- it's more than simply a relaxation technique. Uh, it goes much deeper than that, right? Right down to the existential level. A sense of ease in your very existence. A sense of ease with your very identity. You know, our very sense of who we are can set us ill at ease. Isn't it true? Feeling uneasy about our very presence, our very existence, our very identity. That's not going to be a fruitful basis or foundation for shamatha. No. A sense of acceptance. A sense of acceptance that it's really okay to be who you are right now. Not to stay that way forever. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Unless you're a Buddha, you know, then it's okay. But otherwise, even 10th stage Bodhisattva, you don't want to hang out there indefinitely. You know, get over it. But it's really okay to be where you are now. You know. We so often, I hear it so many times when I'm just meeting with you individually, and I know it so well from my own experience, of ha- having that sense that I'm not, at least not quite living up to my expectations. My practice isn't going quite as well as I'd hoped. And making that chronic. Imagine you've had parents like that. And no matter what you did, you never quite pleased them. They said, well, that was, that was pretty good. I hope you got on that film. It was a sigh. Like, that, that, was, that was quite good. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was okay. But I know you can do better. Yeah. Never live up. You always feel not quite making the grade, right? And so I just have to say that would be not good parenting. I think it's probably a safe evaluation. In which case then we're not parenting ourselves very well if we never just gives ourselves a break. You know, and saying, you know, really, that's good enough for now. It's really quite good enough for now. And one, one phrase that I really like is you're going in the right direction. I've mentioned this, that, just that phrase to quite a number of you. Not that you've hit a certain level, now you've met my expectations, now you're in my, you know, thumbs up book. I don't have a thumbs up book, you know. But there is such a thing as going in the right direction. And whether you're going fast or slow, well, we really can't control that. But we can really exert some major influence. Are you going in the right direction or not? Are you wandering around in circles? You're going backwards? You're going in the right direction. The path, the whole notion of path, is going in the right direction. Right? It's that simple. And taking satisfaction in that, taking contentment, and then with that satisfaction, that contentment, then you can be at ease. 
that it's okay to be on stage two out of nine stages of shamatha. It's really okay. You have to be there sometime. Why not today? And then be gradually moving on, see where that takes you. So that first point, well, the parallel, this is going already longer than I expected, but the parallel in shamatha you know very well. But now what about this lucid dreaming business? You know, often it's an anomaly, or sometimes it's a nightmare, but just something in the dream clicks you over into lucidity. And if you're relatively a novice in having lucid dreams, that tends to be something of a buzz, kind of exciting. Wow, you know, this is a dream. And then you wake up. (laughs) It's really, really common, you know. And so the first thing, as soon as you've made that little breakthrough, that breakthrough, that shift of the axis to no longer viewing the dream from inside the dream as a dreamed person, but rather viewing the dream from the perspective of someone who knows it's a dream and therefore not totally embedded in it, right? As soon as that happens, the first thing is, oh, almost be kind of like nonchalant, like, ah, bien sûr. It's a dream, but of course. <laughs> you should really do it with a French accent. You should try that. You know. It makes it more suave. And nicht auf Deutsch, das geht gar nicht. Überhaupt nicht. Nicht auf Deutsch, bitte. It's much too tough in German. Switzerdeutsch, okay. A bit of Basler-Deutsch, okay. Grützewald, yeah. yeah. Es ist ein Traum. Es ist nicht der Traum. It's ganz okay. <laughs> but chill, you know, relax. Ease into it. Ease into it. So that's the first thing. And then you can have that continuity when you don't jolt yourself out of the dream and out of your lucidity. And then, of course, you know what's coming after that is now, okay, you're maintaining, well, now keep up these two independent variables. You remember? Number one, maintain the dream. You're in now the perfect lab space for exploring your mind. I mean, this is a major transitional phase or process. This is why Padmasambhava is highlighting it so much. And so the longer the better, frankly. Dreams can go on, according to Stephen Lebert, as long as 90 minutes, one single coherent story. That's a nice long story, right? But increase your lab time. Well, this means you remain engaged with the dream. Don't close your eyes. Some of you try to close your eyes, you lose your dream immediately, like within seconds. So keep your eyes open. But not only keep your eyes open, but engage. Engage. Be, you know, like a, like a toddler exploring the world by touching it, smelling it, looking at it, listening to it. And by really being engaged with the dream, then you maintain the dream. The continuity will continue. That's one point. And then, if necessary, remind yourself within the dream just to make sure that the lucidity is being sustained. This is a dream. Just whenever you might be kind of losing it and slipping right back into non-lucidity, just remind yourself of something you do know. This is a dream. This is a dream. So those two independent variables. You could lose the dream and maintain your lucidity, in which case you'll slip into lucid, dreamless sleep. You could lose the dream. You could lose the lucidity and not the dream, which in just case you're just falling back into a non-lucid dream. All right. So they are independent variables. You want to maintain both, and that's done with stability, with continuity. And then, within the dream, of course, as you're maintaining it now, you're kind of eased, you're taking it in stride, enjoying it, of course, there's a lot to enjoy, uh, and you're maintaining continuity, then, now tomorrow, I think we'll probably start tomorrow, we'll go into this really brilliant phase of emanation and transformation, where you're really trying, you really are exploring the world of lucid dreaming, you're exploring the nature of your mind, and this lucid, kind of this capacity, this potential of luminosity, of your own consciousness that's displaying itself 
in this extraordinarily vivid and realistic dream and exploring the nature of that reality. Well, what's that entailing is you're really bringing the pashaman in now. So the first part of just relaxation stability, that's your shamatha within a dream. That's your shamatha of the dream. Maintaining the relaxation stability, maintaining continuity of your dream and of your awareness that it is a dream. Well, that's stability. That's shamatha. But now, as soon as you're starting to investigate, probing into running experiments, can you walk through a wall? Can you breathe underwater? Can you multiply yourself? Can you shapeshift? Can you shapeshift other things? Can you transform one into many, many into one, and so on? Well, that's Vipassana. That's flat-out Vipassana. Right? And if the motivation is deep, then this is not a trivial exercise. It's not just showing off or exercising mundane cities in a dream, which really can be quite trivial. And as one, one of you mentioned, boring after a while. After you've walked on water you know, a number of times, and, you know, where's the thrill? And that goes for everything else, including dream sex. You know, it's not been one of my shticks, but there are people who, you know, just go that, go that. Stephen LeBert did it. It's very public. But he did it, and after a while, it's kind of like, ha. Huh. So it's a nice story. I'll, I'll just mention that before we go on. It's a nice story. I think he must have published it one place. But he'd, you know, he had hundreds of lucid dreams. And he'd had his fill of, you know, dream sex, anybody you want. You know, they're going to be very amenable to your desires because you're controlling them. Sex, sex trade and dream. Yeah. Um, and so he's driving along, but he's kind of really been, been there and done that. And he's driving along out, out in the countryside someplace in one of his dreams, and he's driving in an open convertible, you know, the cool dude. And he sees these three cheerleader-type babes on the side of the road going, you know. <laughs> and he's looking at them and said, yeah, I could do that again, you know. They're easy. I mean, they're you know, inviting. And he says, maybe not this time. You know, I've, I know exactly what that's going to be like. It's just going to be one more. And so he passed them by. <laughs> Actually passed them by. <laughs> but good for him. And then he decided, now I'm trying to remember exactly the question, but it was not quite what is the, I think, what, what is the highest meaning? What is the highest meaning? And he just posed that question as he left you know, the, the babes behind in the rearview mirror. What's the highest meaning? That's clearly not it. I mean, for most people, that would not be it. Right? And so he poses that question. What is the highest meaning? And as he does that, his convertible then turned into a spaceship. And it just started going up into the sky. And then deeper and deeper. And went into deep space. Into deep space. And then he had this sense of vast expanse and love. And that was his answer. So that's Vipassana. That's Vipassana. You can go in a spin cycle of hedonic pleasures and mundane cities for as long as you, know, you find it still interesting. But dream yoga is not about that. It never was. Right? And so that's Vipassana. And that's where you're really accentuating the vividness, the clarity, the insight, the radiance. Not only high-definition dreams, but also insight, clear insight, into the dream. And that's a culminating factor of that. Sometimes, I've seen in some Dzogchen texts, they'll align the stability aspect with shamatha and the vivid, vividness aspect with Vipassana. I, I see the point. I mean, clearly for shamatha, you, you have to have vividness. But they're making a point there that the real core of the shamatha is really primarily that stability, that calm, that inner serenity and continuity of attention. That's its real core, its backbone, so to speak. And the real backbone, or let's say the cutting edge, 
the cutting edge of the passion, of course, is the clarity. You say, now I'm clear, now I'm clear. Are you clear? I know Tony Karan, claro, claro, you know? So in translation, claro, is it clear? Well, this means vipassana. Do you get some insight? Did you understand it? Are you sharp? You get it. And so there it is. So there are these three themes of shamatha running right through your dream, room, dream yoga practice, right? So they really match each other very well. Final point before we go in, and it's going to be a silent session, by the way, uh, is for the shamatha, that we have this nice spectrum. Really, I have really nothing more to add in terms of method for shamatha itself. We have a nice spectrum of mindfulness of breathing. We have the settling the mind. If there are any questions, we can run through those, but it's a very simple technique. And then these different nuances, the sequences of shamatha without a sign, culminating in the emerging mind with space. So I have nothing to add to that. I mean, it's brilliant. Um, and it's good to become familiar with all of them. And then also from session to session, day to day, including when the retreat's over and you're someplace else doing something else in a different lifestyle, it's good to sort of take your pulse, in a manner of speaking. Take your pulse. Uh, and that is, if you, if you feel inclined, you know, maybe, it's, maybe you have a regular session in the evening, maybe a regular session in the morning. That would be a nice way to format your day. Begin with sanity, end with sanity. That would be a good idea. Um, but as you sit down, you may notice that, especially at the end of the day, some days really quite turbulent, upsetting, things really nagging, uh, rumination comes in, emotional upsets. You maybe feel on occasion quite tight, kind of stressed out, bent, torqued, twisted like that. Uptight, there's the word. It's really a nice word, uptight. Right? In which case, you can do awareness of awareness. You can do settling the mind. But you might just really want to think long and hard about the infirmary. And just, you know, you don't need to crack the whip now. You know, we Eurocentric people, we're pretty good at cracking the whip. Hard work, hard work, pedal to the metal, get this done, don't wimp out, keep on trying. You know, and sometimes it's kind of like, give us a break here. I've had a tough day. And maybe the best thing I can do for my mind is just go into the infirmary and be sweet to myself and breathe, and breathe out, and release, and release, and release. And that may be much more beneficial than practices you think are more advanced, including you know, Dzogchen and so forth. And other days you may feel not so uptight, that's probably exactly the word, not so uptight or stressed out, but just turbulent. A lot of energy coming up. A lot of energy coming up. You know, uh, just a lot of thoughts, even if it's not emotionally charged. And for that, again, mindfulness breathing. That's what the Buddha recommended for people who are strong in compulsive ideation. Mindfulness of breathing. It can be in the infirmary. It can be focused in the abdomen. It can be full body. It can be this, this approach that I really, I mean, I deeply resonate with, of taking that breathing in and out long, breathing in and out short, the whole body, and then calming. And just seeing how, that, how you melt into that, you know, into that mode just gently calming, calming, subduing the whole system by way of mindfulness of breathing. Letting that turbulent energy just kind of settle down without you know, trying to force it down. And then other occasions when you feel pretty, pretty mellow, pretty relaxed, pretty grounded, then you have some nice choices. Number one, any of the above. But then set to, uh, taking the mind as a path can be very, very good. Developing a skill that will serve you well in so many ways throughout the course of life, you know, that recognizing before, the, you know, the spark before the flame, 
recognizing the impulses, recognizing with discerning intelligence, when your mind has become come under the domination of a mental affliction of any sort, you know, recognizing that soon, and in a non here's the phrase non-judgmental, highly discerning. Non-judgmental means you're not beating yourself up. You're not looking down on yourself. You're not disapproving of yourself. You're just recognizing the mind adventitiously, that is, it comes and goes, the mind adventitiously right now is under the domination of a mental affliction. And for my own sake and for the sake of everyone around me, this is not a time to be active. Any more than if you're coming down with a cold. It's not the time to be shaking hands with people and sneezing on them. It's just, you're not a bad person. It's just, why make this contagious? You may not get over the cold quickly, maybe you will, but one thing you can do is not share it with others. That'd be nice. Basic courtesy. So likewise, when your mind is dominated by mental affliction, basic courtesy. Keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. So that taking the mind as a path is just enormously useful in getting the antenna up, if you're well informed. If you don't know what mental afflictions are, then, you, then that's not going to help. You'll just see, ah, oh, my mind is happening. But knowing when it's time best to quarantine your mind, when it's time to express it freely. So, and then, of course, when the mind is quite balanced, you can always go right into awareness of awareness in any of those modalities. And a final point, and it's very, very short, um, combination plates, really good. That is, if you have two sessions doing one, like earth and wind, earth and sky, you know what those are, mindfulness of breathing, taking the mind as a path, mindfulness of breathing, awareness of awareness, uh, but also in one session, in one session, more, well, the first part, whether it's the first eight minutes, 24, 12 minutes, or what have you, the first part may be very well done, you know, most effective, because that's what we're here to be, effective, is really calming, soothing, gently in the mind, the body and mind, the whole system. And for that, mindfulness of breathing can be terrific. And then when you feel ready, you feel pretty mellow, relaxed, grounded, uh, then slipping over into taking the mind as a path or the shamatha without a sign, either one of those. So you have a nice repertoire here. And as if you have a refrigerator full of nice food, then choosing, you know, from morning to from one meal to the next, a few a bit heavier food, maybe you need a bit grounded, something really light, maybe a larger portion now, maybe more, more just an hors d'oeuvre. Then you're just then you're being very sensitive to what your body needs in terms of nutrition. So likewise in terms of your body mind. Be sensitive to what your body mind can best use in terms of this nice variety of, uh, of practices of shamatha. And then all of these flowing right into your dream yoga practice. You have a nice menu. All right. So we'll now have a 24-minute session, and it will be totally silent. So let's return to the text. So we're, on, we're going to go to, back to the top, page 151, to this first section of the nighttime instructions on dreaming and the, nature, the natural liberation of confusion. Apprehending the dream state, which of course is simply apprehending the dream state as the dream state, which is lucidity. So again, just very brief repetition here. Dreaming is induced by habitual propensities, so regard all daytime appearances as being like a dream and like an illusion. So let's pause there now, not to reiterate, but make an important point. And that is, when you are, when you are actually dreaming, then all those appearances are simply empty appearances. There's nothing behind them. 
uh, and they exist nowhere other than the space of your mind. Clear, that was repetition. Now, during the waking state, during the waking state, all these appearances are still occurring nowhere else other than the same domain, the same theater, than the theater in which all your dream appearances occurred. Space of the mind, the same. So in that regard, very dreamlike, because appearance of appearances, and the dream can be about as vivid as a waking state, which means, well, it really is very, very similar. Right? And if you've, and again, tiny bit of repetition, if you've become rather adept at, really seeped your mind in, the practice of taking the mind as a path, which means you've made kind of an ongoing strong habit, especially if you're practicing 8, 10, 12 hours a day for months on end, a real habit of not reifying, not concretizing the appearances you're seeing, but seeing mental appearances as mental appearances and not seeing them as anything else, not grasping onto them as being anything else, right? Because they aren't anything else. Then when you come out of your meditation and you're gazing around, as Leda Blingba says, you'll be seeing all these appearances as empty appearances. They are simply what they appear to be. They are appearances, and they are empty. They're not really out there. You know, they don't have those appearances, don't have any existence from their own side, by their own nature. So, so far, again, it's very, very similar. Right. But now in Tibetan terminology, in Tibetan texts, one finds these different phrases. And that is, one on the, on the one hand, we have the appearances to the five senses. The appearances, shapes and colors to the visual, sounds to the auditory, and so forth for all of the five physical senses. But in, in addition to the the appearances to the five senses, they also speak of, of yul are objects. Objects. Okay? Not, not quite the same. Uh, as simple appearances. So, for example, as I'm gazing at this, this piece, of, piece of paper here, gazing at the piece of paper, well, what am I seeing? I'm seeing colors and shapes, and then I'm feeling tactile sensations, and then I can hear the sound as I, as I wrinkle it, crinkle it, tap it. Uh, I could taste it and smell it if I wanted to. And so appearances, and that's all I'm getting, right? It's just, I'm just getting appearances, appearances, appearances. That's fine, that's true, but there's something else true. I'm holding a piece of paper. And this is something we really must not overlook. Mm. Somebody made this piece of paper. Somebody else made this piece of paper. It came from cotton or from wood or what have you. Uh, and the, the maker, the printer, the reasons they had it and so forth occurred independently of my mind stream. It's just kind of an obvious point, but we really do need to bear that in mind. That this is not simply a free creation of my own awareness. But there's a piece of paper here. We just have to come back to the simple point. Now, does it exist inherently and all of that? No, but there is a piece of paper here. And I can die right now, and the piece of paper will fall to the ground. But it's not going to vanish. It'll vanish for me. But it won't vanish for anybody else who's looking on. You're in the center of your mandala, and we're sharing something. This is one of those invariants across multiple cognitive frames of reference. right? We're all human beings. We all know what paper is, so nothing that I said is unintelligible, strange. And I'm holding up, and if I ask you, please describe the paper I'm holding in front of you, we're going to get a lot of very, very similar descriptions. And it's very easy, as I've said before, to conclude from that, well, that means there's a real piece of paper there, independently of anybody's perception, because look at all the consensuality, the consensus, the agreement of what kind of paper is it. 
And the Madhyamaka says, well, not quite so fast. That would be a reasonable explanation. It's called metaphysical realism. But it's not the only possibility. Once again, I'm coming back to this theme. We have a choice. We're not forced to the conclusion of metaphysical realism by the fact that there's consensus as we all look at a piece of paper. We're not forced to that conclusion. It's not a crazy one. A lot of very smart philosophers, scientists, religious people, and so on, and people who have no particular training, plumbers, gardeners, and so forth, a lot of highly intelligent, very educated, deeply thoughtful people are completely convinced that metaphysical realism is right. And it's certainly not a foolish idea. If you're going to refute it, roll up your sleeve. It's not going to be an easy one. But the, the point in, in Yogacara, my only view, is you have a choice. You're not forced to metaphysical realism. You could put the whole, whole burden of reality on the mind and the mental imprints, the karma, the habitual propensities, collective karma, individual karma, the intertwining, the interest net of individuals, multiple sentient beings, multiple continua of their substrate consciousness, their st so-called storehouse consciousness. And you may find sufficient grounds for consensuality, the invariance across all of these multiple frames of reference, including if you go out, as I often do, you take a twig, hold up the twig to a whole bunch of human beings, everybody see a twig, 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 a lot of commonality, invariant, and then I see a worm on the walkway, as I many, many of you do, and then I take my twig and I get that worm off. And so the twig, the, the worm is also feeling something that will have some commonality to what I'm perceiving. It won't be the same, but there will definitely be some commonality. It's firm. It's firm enough to pick the worm up and put him over in a soft and warm place, you know, a, a moister place. And so clearly there are invariants across the cognitive frames of reference from animals to human beings. Now, if we go to pretas, uh, they'll be seeing something different. Hell beings, oh, and that's different. Devas, different. So the commonality starts to fade out a lot as you go through these radically different cognitive frames of reference. So metaphysical realism is very intelligent, but it's not the only intelligent one. Yogacara, boy, if we look at the minds that adopted Yogacara, there's some pretty powerful minds that opted for that instead of metaphysical realism. You know, really, they're as smart as anybody else. And we find that whole Yogacara, that Chittamatra view, we find it in Chinese Buddhism, it had an influence in Zen, very, very prominent in India, and you'll see some of its terminology and so forth floating over into the Yogacara Madhyamaka, Yogacara Svatantika Madhyamaka, it flows into Madhyamaka, and you'll see terminology and some similar themes in Dzogchen as well. And so, Yogacara is a possibility. Not metaphysical realism, but everything mind-only. Well, now you can really play with everything being dreamlike. Because the objects themselves, not just the appearances, the objects themselves consist of nothing other than appearances. And then the invariance across multiple cognitive frames of reference Really, then, the, the burden for that is not some external physical world, but the mind and karma. The myriad worlds arise from karma. So that's where the ontological burden is. If you don't believe in reincarnation, forget it. Then that's just not an option. But if you've woken up and, sm and smelled the, smell the roses and see that consciousness is, does not arise from matter, consciousness arises from subtler dimensions of consciousness, then this becomes very viable. Real hard sell in the modern world. Because the whole notion of continuity of consciousness is, you know, not part of the scientific tradition so much. But then we go to Madhyamaka. And this is where it gets very subtle. Because it's so easy to slip into kind of solipsism, back into just settling the mind and just appearances and they're all arising in the space of my mind. 
And we'll see in Dzogchen, we'll see in Dzogchen, I think it's coming up rather quickly here, that when, you fall, when you're in the waking state, and you're looking around in your room just before falling asleep, all these appearances of your room, your body, the lights, and so forth, all of those appearances, every single thing you pick up, including your thoughts about them, and so forth, all of those are occurring in space of the mind. Nowhere else. And you have no access to any appearances outside of the space. You have no access to anything outside of the space of your mind. Right? But then you say, oh, okay, yes, I'm sleepy, I'm ready to bed. So you get into bed, and then slowly, as you're drifting off, all those appearances, they vanish. You're the center of your mandala. All those appearances for you, they're not waiting for you when you fall asleep, thinking, gosh, I wonder how long you should be asleep this time. Well, we'll wait until, here I am, you know. No, they're nowhere. They're nowhere. They don't exist anywhere in the universe because they existed only in your substrate, and now they're not there, which means they're not anywhere else either. So all the appearances of your room dissolve into the substrate. You go into deep non-REM sleep, stage four non-REM sleep. All appearances vanish into the substrate. And then after roughly 90 minutes or so, they say after you fall asleep, then you start your first dream cycle. And lo and behold, you're probably not dreaming about your room. If you aren't, that should be a dream sign. Because unless somebody kidnapped you while you were asleep, put chloroform, knocked you totally out, and put you into another room, you shouldn't be in another room. So that should be your first dream sign. An anomaly has taken place. I went to sleep in Phuket, and I woke up in Guadalajara. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> you know, so that should be a dream sign already. This is not Phuket. You know. and so, but now all these appearances, wherever your appearances of the first dream are, where are they coming from? The same place that all your waking experiences came from. They all arose from the substrate. And then they dissolve back into the substrate, and then you have your first dream, they rise in the substrate, you're manifesting in the substrate, and then they dissolve back into the substrate. Same, same, same. But here's something that, how do you say, we have to bear in mind. You could, be falling, you could have fallen deep asleep, right, into not, stage four non-REM sleep, no appearances, except for a substrate. And then it could happen that an earthquake strikes, in Santa Barbara we're just waiting, a big earthquake strikes, completely demolishes your house, the house caves in upon you and kills you while you're asleep. That can happen, right? We all know that can happen. A burglar can come in and shoot you. I mean, you could die of a stroke. You could die of a heart attack. You, somebody could, you know, all kinds of things can happen. You don't, have your eyes, you don't have to have your eyes open to be killed while you're sleeping, right? And so, no, from your perspective, there are no appearances of the house collapsing or etc., etc., but you're not immune to things happening to you while you're asleep. Now, from your perspective, what you're getting, if the house collapses in on you, and you have probably a very brief moment of pain, if it's a lot of tonnage coming down, what will appear in your substrate is intense pain, and then you're back into the substrate. And other people coming in an hour later will say, oh, he's dead, he's dead, no love, his crushed corpse. And all you get was substrate, pain, substrate. That's what happened in your world. But you do have pain, and it was caused by something. And from other people's perspective, well, the house collapsed. It was a great big earthquake and demolished the whole neighborhood. So we have these issues of objects, and that's what I'm really getting at here. We can't ignore that. That objects, glasses, that I didn't make. I didn't dream these glasses up out of nothing. When you're dreaming, you do. Nobody made those glasses. 
That's the big deal. Nobody made the glasses that you're wearing in your dream. Somebody made these. That's the truth that doesn't go away. Right? And I die, I'll leave the glasses behind. Die in your dream, your glasses aren't left behind. They don't exist anywhere. The glasses don't exist anywhere. Not only appearances, the glasses don't exist anywhere. So, so we tread carefully here that we're following a middle way. And that's what he's getting at. So all day, day, you regard all daytime appearances being like a dream, like an illusion. All right, so far, because he, he said appearances, so far you could do that if you just have a deep grounding in taking the mind as the path. Or maybe awareness of awareness, where you're, again, just not reifying, focusing, substantializing, solidifying appearances. And just bear in mind that in the back of your mind, if you will, this marvelous, juicy phrase from William James, for the moment what we attend to is reality. And if you're spending, as many scientists do, many other people do, if just the, for the course of your day and day after day, month after month, year and decade after decade, you're focusing on the physical, the physical, physical, physical. As a brain scientist, you go to work and you're looking at brains and brain scans and EEG and MRI and brains, and then, you know, then it's really understandable. There's no lack of intelligence here at all. I mean, these not, you, know, you don't get to be a brain scientist by being unintelligent. But that's what they're attending to. So of course, and they're not, probably, at least not professionally, as they're attending to, to their brain, they're probably not really exercising their metacognitive skills that much. You know? And so of course, for the moment what you attend to is reality, then of course, if you're spending you know, hours and hours a day, year after year, the brain is just going to seem to you far more real than subjective experiences. It just will. That's what you've been attending to. Whereas a yogi, whether an Indian yogi living 1,500 years ago or a Tibetan yogi living 500 years ago, spending just that amount of time, 12 hours a day, observing the mind, but that person, the, whole, the notion of the whole world being purely an illusion, simply, that makes sense. Right? And if you're attending to the physical all the time, the whole notion that there absolutely has to be a physical world out there, because you're reifying it every single moment of the day, every day for decades on end than the notion that there's even any choice. As E.O. E. E. Edward O. Wilson, a very smart scientist. I mean, he's really distinguished, and not because he's unintelligent. He says, you know, he said only what madmen and some weirdo philosophers question the existence of a, you know, a physical world that is absolutely out there and independent. It's not because he's foolish. But that's what he's attending to. He's looking all the time to the physical and reifying it every time he does it. So what else would you think? You know? So... But now, to go deeper into this, to see all appearances as, well, yeah, these are all arising in my substrate, that's a good step in the right direction. Number one, it's true. But what about objects? What about glasses? What about trees? What about Tanyapura? This, a, lot of, a lot of work went into making this place. A lot of work didn't go into making appearances in your mind, because you can conjure those up for free every time you dream. Nobody had to make, if you dream of being a Tanyapura, nobody built it. That's for free. The Tanyapura here isn't for free. An enormous amount of work went into it. And it will be here when we're gone. Right? Somebody in, for somebody else's mandala. And so, objects. How do you deal with objects? In terms of bringing in this daytime dream. This, well, and then we're moving into nighttime dream yoga. So, now we move on. Acquiring penetrating insight. Okay, vipassana. According to the statement in the perfection of wisdom, all phenomena. Okay, now it's not just appearances. Phenomena. Things. Entities. All phenomena are like a dream and like an illusion. Okay, but he said like. 
like a dream. Well, that's exactly perfection of wisdom. That's exactly the second turning of the wheel of Dharma. It's exactly Madhyamaka. You go into the space-like samadhi, space-like samadhi, where you're going into meditative equipoise, non-conceptually, if you can, realizing emptiness in which the whole phenomenal world just disappears, does not exist from your perspective. And then you come out and you engage with this phenomenal world of appearances and objects. And then you view them as, as being dream-like. So it's gyuma double dingenzin, the, the illusion-like samadhi. And those are your two practices. Once you realize emptiness, space-like, illusion-like, space-like, illusion-like, right? Emptiness and appearances. Appearances are empty. Emptiness is not other than appearances. So you're going back and forth. And so there's a statement. But now he said, like, like. Okay? In other words, you can still be viewing this, when you're viewing phenomena here, as being like an illusion. Well, that's what an Arya Bodhisattva would do, who recognizes herself as an Arya Bodhisattva, which means not a Buddha, but rather far along the path. But viewing reality from the perspective of a very noble, sentient being. In which case, this is not a dream, but this is very much like a dream. Because the dreams appear, all the objects in the dream. So there's Marta over there in a dream. Marta, she's also in, in the dream. She's a person. She's not just an appearance. I say, hi, Marta. And then she says, hi, Alan. What's up? Well, that's a person doing that within the context of the dream. And she appears to be there from her own side. Well, the same in the, in the waking state. Right? Appears to be and isn't. So now it's very deeply dream-like. Hmm. Dream-like. Dreamlike, but now we so there we are viewing it from the perspective of the sentient being. But you know where he's going because this is a Dzogchen text. Let's see where he goes. It's going to be coming up very soon. In particular, it is crucial to practice the instructions on daytime appearances and the illusory body. Okay, so he's just referring you to the last section of the text. At this time, okay, now we're moving into deep waters. At this time. Having already finished searching for the mind, identifying awareness, gone into Dzogchen meditation, viewing reality to the best of our ability from the perspective of Rigpa, right? Now we're going there. We're now linking this, this bardo with the preceding bardo and the bardo to come, the next one after this. At this time, powerfully imagine that your environment, city, house, companion, conversations, and all activities are a dream. Okay, now we just, we just moved up a notch, right? He didn't say like a dream. He said, imagine this is a dream, this dream, Tartantuku, right? So imagine all are a dream, and even say aloud, this is a dream, and continually imagine that this is just a dream. Now, we've been here for five weeks, so you know where that's coming from, that you're not deluding yourself, you're not pretending, he did say imagine, but he didn't say delude yourself. So if you do a state check, you know, you see something weird, you see an anomaly, you pull your nose, your nose doesn't get longer, you read something, it's the same every single time, you jump, you come thumping down, say, I think I've just figured out I'm not dreaming. And then Padmasambhava says, so what? From your perspective, as a sentient being, yeah, you're not dreaming. But we don't want you to linger there. This is a Dzogchen text. So give it a rest. You have a choice. Once again, you have a choice. Isn't it? You have a choice. If you want to view this as being like a dream, fine. You're practicing the causal vehicle, the sutrayana. No problem. 
But if you're venturing into Vajrayana, venturing into Dzogchen, same thing. Totally released without vestige, without a trace, even the nominal status of your being a sentient being. It's a choice. You're not forced to that because it's not completely delusional and crazy that you're a sentient being. Otherwise, the Buddha would never have to teach, had any need to teach Dharma. Everybody's just enlightened. Well, then that's great. That was what I was hoping for. Then I don't need to turn the wheel of Dharma. Everybody's enjoying? Good, me too. And they just sit under the Bodhi tree. But you have a choice. If you have the insight, you have the choice. If you have recognized that your very presence, your very identity as a sentient being is something that wasn't there already, but something that was constructed by the power of conceptual designation, then you have the key. The diagnosis is the, is the solution. The diagnosis is, I, as a sentient being, exist independence upon my own conceptual designation. Therefore, that's my diagnosis. Therefore, if I remove the conceptual designation of myself as a sentient being, I no longer exist as a sentient being from my perspective. I now choose to do that. It's your choice. If you feel, no, no, I was already a sentient being, I just recognized the obvious, then it's back to the drawing boards. Okay. And that's understandable. We certainly feel like sentient beings. But then also, when you're in a, in a non-lucid dream, you certainly feel like you're the person in that dream, taking out your life insurance, buying a home and starting to pay off the mortgage in your dream. So big difference now between lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Big difference. And they're complementary. I, I mean, I wrote the book Dreaming Yourself Awake with the recognition they are very different. There are underlying assumptions that are different. One is rooted in modern science. The other one is rooted in Buddha Dhamma, which means, you know, in terms of basic worldview, modern science on the whole is rooted in metaphysical realism. And there's a lot of you know, materialism there. Not everyone, but it's a, very prevalent. But here's a major difference, and it has to be extremely clear in the mind. And that is in the modern discipline of lucid dreaming, the whole notion of looking for dream signs, looking for anomalies, and then recognizing a dream sign, or just anomaly of any sort at any time, and then recognizing that's an anomaly, right? And then having recognized it. It can even be a small anomaly for people really now, if you're really kind of engaging with this dream yoga practice and bringing in some of the themes of lucid dreaming practice, then whenever you see any kind of anomaly, then you, you recognize it. You, you're poised to recognize it, that prospective memory. Today I'm going to be on, have my eyes wide open. I'm going to be on the alert for the, for the occurrence, the experience of any kind of anomaly. I'm going to be looking for anomalies, looking for anomalies, anything weird. Right? So that's your prospective memory, your resolve at the start of the day when you're venturing into your daytime practice. I'm going to keep my eyes wide open for any kind of anomaly. Okay, another type of prospective memory. And then you see something. And I'm just I'm going to back up just briefly. So many of you told me, even in the last week, that your dream recalls getting better and you're flabbergasted that while you're in the midst of the dream, these wild, crazy anomalies are, are coming up. And you're just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That all makes sense to me. I've seen pigs fly before. Why not again? <laughs> you know, like, and you kind of, 
how could I have missed that? You know, pigs flying or you know, weirder stuff than that. You know, and it's because you haven't yet made a habit of looking for anomalies. When you see one, almost like shouting out, that's an anomaly, you know? Like a gecko that's just come into your room. That's an anomaly. Do a state check. You know? So recognize the anomaly as anomaly, but it's not just a ritual now, but it's then really seriously asking yourself, raising the, at least a little tiny fraction of a qualm. That's an anomaly. Is it possible that I could be dreaming? Is it possible? Knowing full well that if your dreams are anything like mine, some of your dreams are about as vivid as what you're experiencing right now. So the mere fact that everything seems to be extremely real is no guarantee at all that you're not dreaming. Right? And the whole notion of pinching yourself, that just doesn't work at all. You can pinch yourself in the dream, it feels pretty much like pinching yourself in the waking state. So that was a, you know, a non-starter. But the point there is recognize the anomaly as anomaly, then ask yourself seriously, might I be dreaming? Then do a state check, and then you get an answer, one way or another. You get an answer. But the, in the lucid dreaming system, if the answer is, I'm not dreaming, and you have now some very good, very compelling, and very likely very accurate test that you've run, and you've got the results in, I'm not dreaming, then it's back to business as usual. And you just carry on reifying everything as usual. Because lucid dreaming is not really an ontological probe into the nature of reality, of waking reality. It's an exploration of dream reality. But once you know that you're not dreaming, then you say, well, then, okay, I'm finished. I'll wait until the next anomaly. Maybe that one will occur when I'm in a dream, and then I'll do a state check, and I'll find I'm dreaming, and then I can have some fun again. But as long as you're still in a waking state, then, well, okay, okay, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open. But it's back to business as usual. And the underlying assumption here, the underlying assumption in, let's say, mental health care, the underlying assumption in science in general, and just generally the world, is that if you're normal, you're sane. If you're normal, you're awake. Like a scientist, you know. A scientist doing blood tests is assuming that he or she is, well, I'm awake. I'm, this is as good as it gets. I'm awake. I'm doing blood tests. I'm, I know how to do them well. And I'm awake already. And I think many therapists, psychiatrists and so forth, um, I have no significant, I have no psychoses at all, I have no significant neuroses that are not well controlled. Um, I'm as good as it gets. I'm sane. I, I don't need therapy. I'm, I'm well adjusted. I've adapted well. I have harmonious relationships. I get upset once in a while, a bit of craving here and there, but very manageable, really quite tolerable. I'm fine. How are you? You know? And the Buddha is saying, oh, Ninja, you still have the five obscurations. You're indebted. You're sick. You're enslaved. You're in bondage. You're lost in a desert track. And you think you're fine. I'm so sorry. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, the bar is raised. If you don't have shamatha, you're really one sad puppy. There's just no criterion in Buddhism to say you're sane when your mind is still heavily inundated by the five obscurations. You know, your mind doesn't work. So it's just different, you know, the bar is set at a different level. So likewise, for the normal world, everybody around us, they say, but this, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing reality as it is. Look around, I'm seeing it, you can see it, we can photograph it, this is it, this is what's happening. Right? 
And so the state check is really then, am I being realistic or am I dreaming? And you'll see there's no state check here. There's never any reference to state checks. There's any reference to looking for anomalies to see whether you might be dreaming or not. It's rather saying from the very beginning, view everything as dreamlike. That's from a sentient being's perspective. A person who has experienced in taking the mind as a path or a person who has experience in realizing emptiness. Sentient being's perspective. And then he's just, again, notched up a whole, ratcheted up to another whole dimension, and that is Zolchen. And that is, do the state check as long as you like. Your nose is not getting longer. Okay, never mind. This is a dream. This is a dream. And you're imagining it to be a dream. So you're bringing in something. You're not just practicing Zolchen. This is dream yoga now. So you are using some of your power of visualization, imagination. And imagine that you actually are dreaming right now. Now, you don't, do that in, 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 uh, you don't do that in lucid dreaming. That might even be considered kind of a self-induced psychosis. Because they say, look, you're not dreaming. You just did the state check, so now why are you imagining that you're dreaming when you're not? And that's a good question. There's no sarcasm here at all. You've just done the test. You know you're not dreaming. So now why are you imagining you're dreaming when... Why do you imagine you're a hippopotamus? You're not a hippopotamus either. So why imagine you're a hippopotamus? Well, that is because there's no perspective from which it is true that you are a hippopotamus. That's the answer. There is no valid perspective from which it is true to say that you are a hippopotamus. So don't imagine you are one. You know what I'm going to say now, though. There is a perspective from which it is true to say, right now you are dreaming. That's the difference. And that's what you're trying to enter into by way of imagination. So you don't need to justify or explain this to people who don't understand the practice, who are living in metaphysical realism. Don't need to explain it better not. As Geshe Rappen said, if I talked about, talk to other people about what I'm realizing here, they would think I'm crazy. You know, Melarepa said, the world thinks I'm crazy, I think the world's crazy. Well, let's hang loose. Be of good cheer. So that's a big, big difference. But now we've slipped into Dzogchen mode of, of dream yoga. Imagine, continue to imagine that this is a dream. Imagine that it's a dream. Imagine that you're viewing this from the perspective of Rikpa. Okay? And then, now that was a segue from daytime dream yoga to nighttime dream yoga, and now we go directly to nighttime dream yoga. Then, when you go to bed in the evening, cultivate bodhicitta, thinking, for the sake of all sentient beings throughout space, I shall practice the illusion like samadhi, and I shall achieve perfect Buddhahood. For that purpose, I shall train in Dreaming. Okay? That was just a loving-kindness practice. Because you're wishing for yourself the joy, the bliss, the fulfillment, happiness, a perfect enlightenment. You're wishing that. That's loving-kindness. But remember, loving-kindness is not simply the aspiration, may I be happy. That's not enough. Anybody can do that. Like sitting around and saying, may I be rich? And they're just sitting there wondering, I wonder when it will happen. Maybe there's some money falling. Maybe there's an airplane and it will blow up and drop money on my head. Maybe, hope so. Not very realistic. Right? Loving kindness is not an idiot's paradise. It's may I, maybe we be happy and cultivate the causes of happiness. So he's arousing aspiration. May we realize perfect Buddhahood. May I realize perfect Buddhahood. And then he's going to a cause. Ah, loving kindness. Right. So for that purpose, I shall train in dreaming. Well, then that's one of the causes. Out of the six bardos, okay, now you've got a strategy, you've got an agenda. Putting in the causes. 
Then, as you lie down, rest on your right shoulder or your right side. Okay, you're adopting the, li- the, the reclining lion's posture, classic in Buddhism, including here in Thailand and other Theravada countries. Rest on your right shoulder, your right side, with your head, pen- head pointing north, your right hand pressed against your cheek. In other words, your, your, your right palm is supporting your right cheek. And your left placed on your thigh. And clearly, clearly imagine your body as your, back then I translated it as chosen deity, which is correct. It's Ishta Devata in Sanskrit, which means your chosen deity. But I think, uh, I translate it now as personal deity. Among Tara, Majushri, Padmasambhava, and so forth. It's the one you feel this personal resonance for. And then you choose. Is it Avalokiteshvara, Tara, Yamantaka? Who is it? And so it's a personal predilection to that manifestation of enlightened awareness that most resonates with your own heart. And then you focus on that one. So, so a little tiny bit of commentary. It's pretty straightforward. But you're adopting the reclining lion posture. <coughs> when he says, with your head pointing north, well, when you're in your own home and you can, re- you can arrange your furniture as you wish, and you can take out your compass, find north, and point, point the head of your bed in that direction. Not a bad idea. But here in Tanyapura, or when you're in a hotel or somebody else's place, uh, they may not like it if you start rearranging the furniture. In which case, um, here's the classic teaching. I'm not making anything up here. So you're facing east. Big deal. Imagine you're facing north. That's enough. Just imagine it. Okay? Um, I won't comment on that. But it's widely stated. I suspect it probably has something to do with the magnetic fields and the alignment of the energies, the, the, the energy fields in the body and the magnetic field. I suspect so. Because they do say point north, not south. And we say in English, too, uh, he, he started a business, but then it went south. Okay. So there's that. And then what's the point of this? Well, the Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha Shakyamuni himself went into Paranirvana in that posture. You'll see some of, I think, the largest, some of the largest statues of the Buddha anywhere. Like here in Thailand, there's an enormous one. Is it in Bangkok? Some place around, but there's an enormous lying Buddha statue. Where is it? Do you know? Agoda Palace. Isn't that Bangkok? Golden Palace. Palace. And in in Bangkok or what? In Bangkok, yeah. So Kim knows the country very well. So, but it's enormous, I think, yeah. Very, very large. Um, So there it is, but he's depicted in that way. That's the way the Buddha chose to pass away. and it's very good for the alignment of the nadis. That's what it's really for. Very good for the alignment of nadis. And Stephen LeBerge did a study of this, because he's known about. He's read everything that was available in English on dream yoga, because this is his whole profession. It's lucid dreaming. <coughs> and it's an interesting tidbit. It's not trivial. That he'd heard that some lamas say that if you're a man, you should lie on your right side, but if you're a woman, you should lie on your left side. So Stephen LeBerge, good empiricist, as a Buddhist should be. But a good empirist, he says, well, he's got, you know, he has, a, he has his lucidity.com. He's in contact with hundreds, if not thousands, of lucid dreamers. So he just ran an experiment. Okay, ladies, you know, try doing it on the left side. And then you ladies over here do it on the right side. And uh, lo and behold, no difference in gender. Right side better. Man or woman, right side. Female Buddha, male Buddha. Right side's good. Because, of course, the internal organs are not symmetrical. The heart's a little bit off to the left. The stomach is over on the left. You don't have a stomach on the right, etc. So there seems to be maybe some significance. Right side is a bit better. Another point, Kim? Anything? 
Yep, there we go. Well, Stephen the Bears answered it. And good, the good old-fashioned way. Not taking it on faith. I mean, there's nothing wrong with faith, but if you can actually do a test with a, with a sizable number of subjects, then that's good. Why not? And I've never heard any Lama say that women should be on the left. So if it were really important, I think it would be a fairly homogenous teaching. And I've received teaching from multiple teachers on dream yoga, and I've never mentioned that. So that's not definitive, but that's evidence. There we are. So for that purpose, I shall train in dreaming. Okay, we finished that. And then, but now here we, we're seeing what he's doing is then, he says, clearly imagine your body as your yidam, your ishta devata. Well, then you know that's a loaded statement. And I can comment briefly because we've already been there. And that is, as you get into bed and you're lying down to go to sleep, then, om ham. Right? All phenomena are by nature pure. The, pure. the purity of phenomena am I. Dissolve everything in emptiness. Dhammadhatu, indivisible from dharmakaya. And from that invisibility of primordial consciousness and emptiness. Then, having released every last vestige, every atom, every thought, every trace of yourself as a sentient being. It has to be totally a clean sweep. Right? has to be. Then out of emptiness, out of primordially pure, never touched by mental afflictions or any kind of obscurations, out of this primordially pure dimension of reality, transcendent, it's rikpa, indivisible from emptiness, from that dimension, by the power of imagination, then you arise, taking on the form of your yidam. Right? And you sustain that pure vision. You do it very gently, very lightly. It's a soft touch. But it's not only taking on the form. Of course, you take on the divine pride as well. This is your form. And who has that form? Yourself as, let's say, Avalokiteshvara. Let's do one more section. If your visualization is not clear, nobody seems to have a problem. Okay. <laughs> if your visualization is not clear, establish the pride of thinking. All right. If the visualization is really, really clear, I mean, if you've achieved shamatha, because bear in mind that was before. If you've achieved shamatha, and you visualize yourself as Let's say Avalokiteshvara. I would suggest a two arm might be a bit better than a thousand arms. That would be an awful lot of arms on one side. A two arm might be quite sufficient. But if you visualize yourself as Tara, Majushu, what have you, lying on your right side, and you're doing it with the full force of shamatha, then it's going to be very easy to have a sense. Well, that's how I appear. That's that's who I am. It's like when you look into the mirror, you think you're a woman, a man, a human being. Because, well, that's what's there. And if your visualization is so powerful because you've achieved shamatha, then that might be enough. But if it's not so clear, if you've skipped ahead in the, in the text like we have, haven't already finished everything that precedes this, haven't finished your shamatha, then your visualization may not be so clear. In which case now, reinforce it. Reinforce it. And that's with the Hlayangagyal, the divine pride. And that's where you're having already dissolved without trace your ordinary sense of identity as a sentient being, human being, woman, Mexican, Brazilian, whatever. Dissolve that entirely into emptiness. Then here's your form. Maybe it's quite vague and you know, 
like that. Okay. But actually, here's a crucial point in Vajrayana. Between the pure vision, your visualization, and your divine pride, the sense, the sense of identity, of being the deity, between those two, which is more important? There's one right answer, and you really need to know what it is. The divine pride is more important. The appearance is secondary. Some people can visualize very well, some people not so very well. But the divine pride, the sense of identity of being the deity, that's really core. So that's what you really should focus on. Visualization, clear, not clear, okay, whatever. But establish the pride of thinking, I am the Yidam. Imagine that on, now this is really sweet. Imagine that on your pillow, your head is resting in the lap of your guru, your primary root guru, your root lama. Incredibly sweet. You ever try that? If, if there's a lama that you really trust, if there isn't one, then cool it, you know, wait. Putting your head in this lap of strangers, a bit weird. But if you know, have a really heartfelt trust, affection, reverence, and so forth, very lama. Then nice. It's all sweet. It's just sweet. It's a nice way to go to sleep. So imagine that. And then vividly focus your attention upon Oregon Padma. Padmasambhava at your throat. So now visualize Padmasambhava at your throat. The size of a thumb joint. So just like an, an inch or a little bit, maybe two centimeters, something like that. Thumb joint, just the tip of the thumb. So quite small, right there in the, in the center of your throat, inside your throat. A little Padmasambhava with a smiling, lustrous countenance, appearing and yet having no inherent existence, so you won't have to cough. You know. <coughs> Coughing up Padmasambhava. You won't have to do that. He's not phlegm. Or kind of like something blocking your throat. Just an appearance. Right? So empty, luminous, very soft. Empty of inherent nature. But you're actually imagining Padmasambhava. Not just an appearance. Imagine actually Padmasambhava being there. And then, but joyful, lustrous, and mentally offer the supplication. May I, where it is, offer the supplication. Bless me, that I may apprehend the dream state. In other words, recognize the dream state as a dream state. Bless me, that I may recognize the dream state as a dream state. So call for blessings. But now he's at your throat chakra. Why? Very good reason. The pranas that are related to the mind. The pranas, five types of prana. Some are by digestion, evacuation, moving, extending limbs, and so forth and so on. Five major types of, pra- of, of, of uh, vata, vata or wind or energy. But there's the, the energy that is associated with mind, the prana. And the, the energy that, among the different types of, of energy, subtle energies in the body, the vital energy that's associated with the mind. When you're in the waking state, those energies converge up here in the chakra in the forehead, inside the head, kind of frontal cortex area, but inside the head, at the forehead, right in the middle of the forehead. So, they current, so you really do have a sense of being in your head, for good reason. That's where all the energies are coming. So no wonder. When you go into the dream state, then those same energies converge then at your throat chakra. So therefore, you tar- you're, you're basically, you're visualizing some enlightened presence, benign, joyful, serene, loving, as a big red magnet, Padmasambhava magnet, to draw the energies out of your head into your throat chakra, to induce, elite, to, to induce dreaming, and to induce it lucidly. When you go into deep dreamless sleep, then the energies drop down to the heart chakra. And that's when your mind collapses into the substrate consciousness. And that's where the energies go when you die. 
into the heart chakra. And then when you've passed into the clear light of death, then they move into the innermost sanctum, the indestructible bindu, and that's when your substrate consciousness collapses into clear light of death. Okay? So colors, white, red, and indigo blue. Okay? So this is red Padmasambhava. Speech Vajra. Doesn't say red? Take my word for it. Red. Lie in the sleeping lying posture and bring forth a powerful yearning to recognize the dream state as the dream state. So here's your prospective memory. You're looking ahead. Strong aspiration. And while so, while so doing, fall asleep without being interrupted by any other thoughts. As much as you can. Just hold that thought. Just very gently. And hold. This takes a lot of finesse. A lot of finesse. It's a very light touch of the visualization. Do it strongly. It'll keep you awake. And it's a very light touch of the resolve, of the anticipation, the aspiration. It's a very light touch. Do it strongly. Keep you awake. So we really need real some subtlety here. And try to maintain that thought without the mind just going wandering all over the place. Because then the continuity will be lost as you fall asleep. Even if you do not apprehend it at the first try, repeat this many times and earnestly do it with powerful yearning. In the morning when you wake up, forcefully and distinctly consider, not a single one of any of the dreams I had last night remains when I wake up. You look for them. They are nowhere to be found. They do not exist anywhere at all. Likewise, not a single one of these daytime appearances today will appear tonight in my dreams. Those daytime appearances for your mandala, they don't exist anywhere in the universe either. They don't exist in other people's minds. They have their own appearances. They don't get yours. Yours doesn't go off like a stray dog looking for some host. Gone. Right? So each one vanishes totally. All the, daytime, all the dream appearances vanish totally when you wake up. And then when you fall asleep, all the daytime appearances vanish totally with no trace when you go into the substrate. There is no difference between the dreams of the day and the night. So they are illusions, they are dreams, and that is one session, and it's dinner time. <laughs> so enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow morning. <laughs>